you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 27, it's our sermon text for this morning. We're going to read verses 45 to 66. It should be page 834 on the blue Bibles in the chairs in front of you. So we are approaching the finish line for Matthew. It's been almost two years. And so we are going to read together this morning of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. But on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And so let's, let's read God's Word. <clears throat> this is God's Word. Now from the sixth hour... There was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lamath sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening... (coughs) There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. And this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy and given in love. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we come now to holy ground to see Christ crucified for us. And so I pray as we see the most significant event in human history, Uh, that you wouldn't leave us unaffected, that your spirit would come and incline our hearts to love you more, for we are prone to wander. So open our eyes now to see the infinite love of Christ our King 
and be with us so that we might hear your voice and follow our good shepherd, the one who laid down his life for his sheep. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if, if someone were to ask you, what is Christianity primarily about? What would you say? I know if we, if we flip the question around and ask our neighbors what they think Christianity is about, what they think we do here every week, most of them would say something along the lines of it's, it's about a code of ethics. It's about moral improvement. It's about following Jesus' teaching. It's about being a loving person, about having someone to tell you what to do to get better, to be good. And culturally, that's where we're at, right? This is, this is the new year. We resolve to do better, try harder, better health, better fitness, better spirituality, you know, eat better, pray better, love better. If, if you ask Matthew, what is Christianity primarily about? We just read it. That Jesus must go to Jerusalem He must be killed, and he must be raised from the dead. This is what Christianity is about. It's about not moral improvement. It's it's because we can't improve ourselves that Jesus had to be crucified. It's about Christ and him crucified for sinners. And so I just want to encourage you, this is a New Year's sermon, right? And resolutions aren't awful. There are things I know I need to improve But in the biblical world, everyone who ever made a resolution to get better, try harder, um, it didn't go well for them. Just think about the Old Testament. The the people of God who were rescued from slavery in Egypt, they resolved to obey all that the Lord has spoken, and all of them, most of them I should say, died in the desert, refusing to believe the good news of grace. The next generation, Joshua 24, <laughs> right? They, they've come in, they've taken the promised land, and they say, we too, we will be faithful. We got this. And Joshua um, politely, not so politely, says, if right now is any indication, you cannot do this. Choose right now whom you will serve. And Hosea sums up really well um, how resolutions work. God, I will love you more. And God responds by saying, your love is like the morning dew. It's here for a moment, and then the sun comes up and gone again. That's just the Old Testament. You get to the New Testament, you have Peter saying, Jesus, I'll die for you, and he gets frightened by a teenage girl. Uh, Paul in Romans 7 says, I have resolutions, but right now, present tense, I still don't do the things I want to do. And so... My hope and prayer for this sermon and for us as a church and for you as you make resolutions, whatever that looks like for you, is that we would resolve to do the most countercultural thing, which is to love Christ crucified. Love Christ and him crucified for you. Uh, that, that in 2019 would be a year where our love for what Jesus has done uh, deepens. Because that's, it, it's, It's wonderful that in God's providence we are starting the new year with Jesus dying. And so let's look at it. What are we supposed to love as we look at what Matthew shows us? 
All right, so I got three points. First, we're going to look at the death of Christ and the death of death and the death of Christ, and then we're going to look at the death of religion. What is Jesus going through as he is hanging there on the cross? We, we talked about it with our kids. He, God's righteous and fair and furious and frightening anger is now aimed at God's beloved Son. <clears throat> and Matthew says that from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, this is Jewish timekeeping, that darkness was all over the land. It was, it was just a way of saying from noon to three in the afternoon, there was this supernatural darkness. It wasn't a solar eclipse. It wasn't possible at that time of year. It was at the time of the new moon. People smarter than me have said scientifically, it's just not how it works. Right. Darkness in the middle of the day. And it's from the darkness, as Jesus experienced God's anger, God's judgment, that Jesus is saying, God, where are you? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so... This is what Matthew is trying to get, get us to see, the, the, this beautiful mystery of the death of Christ, that Jesus is God's beloved son. He is innocent in of himself. He is God's beloved son, the only human being God has ever said by virtue of his resolutions and his good works, I'm pleased with what, everything you have done. And Matthew has also shown us thus far that Jesus is not an ordinary human. He is Yahweh, God, the Creator, come down, wrapped in human flesh. He is the Old Testament God, come down, made visible. And so if we could put this in, in terms of the Trinity, we'll use some theological language here. Jesus is God's eternal Son. And God is Jesus' eternal Father. They have always been in joyful, loving, delighting in one another, relationship together, even before the world was made. There was never a moment where Jesus was alone. Ever. He has always been in this delightful, Trinitarian community of love. And yet, here on the cross, you have the Son of God crying out, suffocating, because he's alone in the darkness, because God's anger has fallen on him, because darkness is a picture of God's judgment, the punishment we deserve for our sin. I mean, Jesus could pray, Psalm 88, darkness has become my only friend. And so you've got to ask why. What, is, what exactly is going on here? Right, and so... If you, if you know the Old Testament, what, one of the things Matthew does is he doesn't tell us explicitly what's going on. He shows us. He's, he's, he teaches through Old Testament flannel graphs, right? He's showing you pictures. And crying out in the darkness and the fact that there is darkness in the land, this was something God promised would happen long ago. That when God comes down to judge sin, he's going to make it grow dark. The sun and moon are going to just disappear from sight in the middle of the day. And so picture it this way. This is a metaphor for hell and judgment, and this is one of the scariest. Right? To be trapped in darkness, cut off from the living God who is light. And so just imagine with me, as one pastor helped me see, what would it be like if the sun disappeared? 
forever. Right? It would be a slow, or maybe fast actually, process of uncreation. Right? Flowers wouldn't grow. Without plants, there'd be nothing to eat. And there's no food for us or for the animals. I mean, life as you know it would be extinguished. And human beings, we're no different. We cannot thrive without the sun. We need light. We're upstate New Yorkers. There's this thing that happens in March. It's called seasonal depression, where we become pale and sad and say, God, send us spring. So if the sun literally disappeared, all of life would cease to exist. We cannot live without the sun. And that's the picture of judgment when it's framed in terms of darkness, that God himself is the sun. He is the giver of life. And Jesus is being cut off from that light going through the judgment. It's like Jesus is being uncreated. He's, being, he's lost in the darkness. And so instead of, like Genesis 1 says, you know, God in love and playful delight, let there be light. Jesus is experiencing God saying, let there be darkness. Let darkness be your only friend. Let you be alone, cut off from the sun. You see it? This is what Amos said. Amos chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. It's right there. And I will make that moment a time of mourning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. God knew what what he was doing. The morning for an only son, the giving up of his only son, his beloved son. And so, tie all this together. I know it's hard for us to get our minds wrapped around this, but Jesus, for all of eternity, had the light of God's presence. And in this moment, for those three hours, he was infinitely cut off, going through hell, darkness. And I know it's easy for us to say, What's three hours in the darkness? What's the big deal? But in those three hours, Jesus lost the only relationship he has ever known. In those three hours, Jesus, the infinite one, experienced infinite lostness, permanent cosmic loneliness. He's he's bearing the curse for our sin. Do you see it? The darkness deserved for every evil ever committed. See, the worst punishment we can ever conceive of is not physical torture. It's solitary confinement. We're we're community-based creatures made in the image of our community, God. And so Jesus is experiencing the loneliness of God never looking on him. You know, just imagine the trauma. I mean, the, the hardness of of any kind of separation relationally, it's dependent on how long you've been in relationship with that person. So, you know, the the separation of parents is painful. The separation of divorce is painful. The longer you are in relationship and accustomed to being around the person, the more painful it is, the bigger hole it is. And so the hole that Jesus is experiencing is an infinite one. I mean, how awful was this cosmic divorce and bitter the loss of his father's smiling face. 
So this is what it's doing here. It, Jesus, Matthew's showing us how serious sin is by showing us what Jesus had to do and, and go through to bear the punishment for our sin. There's another layer. Because there's another time in the Old Testament when it got dark. And it wasn't pretty and it was horrific and traumatic. It was when God sent a supernatural darkness uh, in the land of Egypt when he was rescuing his people. Right? Remember the story of Exodus when God went to war for his people fighting against Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods. He sent the ten plagues and the ninth plague was darkness all over the land. And in that darkness that night, the angel of death was going to come and, and judge all those who were not covered by the blood of the Lamb. It was God's judgment for sin. Right? The wages of sin is death. And so the picture we have here, Matthew's trying to show you and I, this really happened. This is history. But we see Jesus, God's beloved son, taking the punishment that Pharaoh bore himself. Right? Death in the darkness. We have God's beloved Son, His eternally always begotten Son, the one who has always been in relationship with God, volunteering to leave the safety of His Father's house to be slain by the angel of death so that we might live. He takes the judgment that both Israel and Egypt, every human being, deserves. It's humbling. And yet, here's what we're being shown, and here's what I want to encourage you with as we spend some time in the darkness. Look at Jesus' relenting, not relenting, relentless. <laughs> Look at his relentless, unwavering commitment to his Father and to us. Right? One of the things that happens when you get into a relationship, you're asked to make sacrifices, you're asked to make changes to, to be in that relationship. And when you're freshly married, that's why the first year of marriage is so difficult, because you're being asked to change things you never thought knew you had to change. Look what Jesus is willing to give up to have you and I to be in relationship with us. The love of his Father. That's how committed he is to us. And even in the dark, he's still committed to God because he cries out, My God, you are mine even though I can't see you right now. And so here's why, as we look at the death of Christ, the death of Christ is not a normal death. This is, it's hard to put in words, it's the only person who has ever gone through hell. And it shows us that God the Father and God the Son have resolved together to love you into heaven, to love you into relationship with them, to give you the love that they have always had for all of eternity by giving it up. And we were talking in Sunday school this morning that, that Christianity is not primarily divine fire insurance. It's about God giving us himself, this loving relationship. It is, well, we talked about Song of Solomon to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> right, my beloved is mine and I am his. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Let us have this intimate, personal relationship this is what the death of Christ accomplished, is to bring you in. All right? 
you can see that. This is, let's look at what the death of Jesus and the darkness accomplishes. It, it shows us <coughs> a God that is better than we could ever imagine. It shows us a God we, who's better than we could ever imagine. Because one, it puts our resolutions in proper, proper perspective, does it not? <laughs> if the relationship is broken, how could we ever um, resolve to do good enough to get out from underneath God's fair judgment? See, God's anger breaking in on Jesus in our place is saying, I need more than self-improvement. I need to be created completely new. I need a savior. I need someone who will take me out of this darkness I am all too familiar with and bring me into God's marvelous light. But two, it shows us just how committed God is. And this is really what I want to push to on us this morning. Edmund Clowney was the, the once ran the Westminster Seminary. He was a pastor. He was a professor. And he often tells this story about about the aftermath of World War II. That in, in, in the aftermath of that violent war, the world was trying to figure out and just come to terms with the reality of the Holocaust. That's pro- you know, the 20th century is one of the darkest centuries in human history. And especially in Germany, as the ordinary Germans were experiencing just how evil could take, that kind of evil could take place in their own backyards, across the street, down the road. And so a local pastor named Gunther Rutenborn wrote this play called The Sign of Jonah. And in the play, these ordinary Germans are asking each other, did you know what was going on? Did you have anything to do with it? These atrocities are awful. Who do we blame for all the cruelty and evil in the world? Who are we to blame for this mess we've gotten ourselves in? Who's to blame for all the injustice? Who's to blame for the darkness? And so it starts with the citizens, just the ordinary Germans. You know, those who knew the camps were down the road, they just chose not to ask questions. And they go like this, it wasn't me. <laughs> it was the soldiers. They were the ones who killed those, those Jews. And the soldiers go, well, it's not my fault. I was just doing what I was told. I was just following orders. It was my commanding officer. They're the ones to blame. And the commanding officers do the same thing. You know, I'm not that bad. <laughs> it was those PhDs, you know, the, the architects, Hitler and his cronies. It was their fault. They orchestrated everything. And at some point, at the end of the play, all the characters pause, and this is what they do. They say, you know what, I'm a sinner. There's evil in the world. It's not my fault. God made me this way. Who's to blame for the darkness? It's not us. If it's God's fault this world is dark, it's God's fault I can't fix me, it's God's fault I can't change, it's God's fault I'm selfish and cruel. And so what they do is they put God on trial. And they lay out all the cruelty and injustice of the Holocaust and what goes on in the world. The gavel comes down. They find God guilty. And they sentence him. And here's the sentence. God must be born a human being, a Jew. He must be a wanderer on the earth. He must be deprived of his rights. He must be homeless. He must become hungry. He must become thirsty. 
He himself shall die and he'll lose a son. God himself must suffer the agonies of fatherhood. And when he dies, God shall be disgraced and ridiculed and despised. See what the cross and the death of Christ is showing us and what Gunter Rutenborn is trying to show us too is that we do not have a God in heaven who sits there and says, you know what, you made this mess, you fix it. Nor does he look at you and say, you are a mess, you fix you. (laughs) He hears our cries and out of great compassion He comes down to experience every nook and cranny of what it means to be human, including death itself, to redeem and renew and recreate every aspect of creation and you and me. Edmund Clowney would often follow that up with saying, God in the gospel of his son does so much more than our blasphemy and our cursing and our anger demands. We just want God to pay for the mess that we have made. (laughs) The irony is God does pay, and he says, does so, saying, I love you. Let's be friends, (laughs) you who were once my enemies. And so that's why I would say, let's resolve to love Christ's death this year. Because in Christ's death, you see a God who loves you more than you can imagine, despite our darkness being more dark than we even comprehend. Second point, and this is shorter. (laughs) We also see the death of death. That's where Matthew goes next as he moves from the darkness to what happens after Jesus physically dies. Jesus dies, he gives up his spirit, he stops breathing at 3 p.m., and it's it's his last act of God's sovereign king to give up his own breath, to go from... To be able to say to our creator, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, as he's laid into the ground. This really is our last enemy. The ultimate enemy of being human is our life comes to an end. And so you see Jesus being God, taking his own medicine, so to speak, to heal us. Going down into the ground to bear every aspect of the punishment of the curse, death itself. And Matthew shows us three things that Jesus' death accomplishes, and the main thing is relational. That's what the curtain's all about. When, when God literally tears the curtain in the temple from top to bottom, this was a supernatural event. I mean, just to get a picture of how thick this curtain was, it was almost soundproof. And some historians have, have said that it probably was so large and heavy that it required 300 priests to arrange properly. This is, this is not just a light f- piece of fabric that would blow in the wind. All right. And to be clear then, Christianity isn't about our resolve to get, get good enough to get into heaven. It's about God's resolve to tear down every barrier to bring us into relationship into heaven with him. Because the, the veil in the temple, that's what it was. It was, <coughs> the temple is where you met God. And the only person allowed behind that veil was once a year with a high priest. And he went in with weak and trembling knees. 
he had a little bell on his ankle and a rope around his leg. So if he did something wrong and, and God killed him, they could drag his lifeless corpse out. So no one else would have to bear the same trauma. Right? It was so thick, trying to show us that no human being on their own was worthy. No one could come in. It was a visual aid that, that the relationship with God is broken because of sin. And the death of Christ, the moment Jesus expires his last breath, and John tells us, he cries out, it is finished. The curtain tears in two so that you and I could come in. So that we could come in without weak knees, without fear and trembling, so that we could come into our Father's house as God's beloved children. in a more intimate relationship than we even understand. <laughs> See, what the death of Christ accomplished is Jesus gives us his Father. God's beloved Son says, My Father who loves me is now your Father. The, the veil is broken. Come into my house. Let's eat together as we're going to do. And then the earth shakes. It's the earthquake. You know, every time the earth shook in the Old Testament and in the history, when it was when God showed up and saved his people. Right? The Gospel of John said Jesus' last words were, it is finished. Matthew just says there, the earth shook. It's showing you it is finished. God has saved his people. The, the earth trembled. Right? It's saying your salvation is fully accomplished. There's no treadmill of self-improvement to get back on. <laughs> Full forgiveness, it is finished. The curse of the law is broken. The work of perfect obedience, even unto death on a cross, that is finished. The earth has shaken. It, it, it will no longer shake on you because it tore Jesus apart. See, the only thing you can do with the death of Christ when you see the earth shake, is receive the gift. To look back on the earth shaken on someone else and say, thank you, God, that you didn't shake me. And then you got the weirdest story, and I think the coolest one, if you're going to be an aspiring novelist, this is it's good reason to write some ghost stories. Right? People come up from the grave on the day Jesus rises from the dead. That Jesus' death accomplishes the death of death. And this is an odd story because it does sound a bit like the night of the living dead, <laughs> to be honest, right? Except it's, it's glorious in the hope that it gives. See, Matthew's saying that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he didn't rise alone, which is true of you and me through union with Christ. That Old Testament saints were wander, wandering around Jerusalem saying Jesus is alive. We don't know who it was. This is the mystery of it. We don't, I wish Matthew would tell us. It would satisfy our curiosity. Maybe it was David. Maybe it was Abraham. Maybe it was Moses. Maybe it was people we've never heard of. Maybe it was Adam seeing Jesus breaking the curse he caused. We don't know. But what it does do it's changed the way we look at, at death. We'll talk more about this next week. But the refrain of the Old Testament and every human life, especially Genesis 5, is, God die, is they lived and they died and he died 
and he died, and he died. Over and over again, every genealogy, they lived this long, doesn't matter how long they lived, they still died. And what this picture gives us is, is showing us that death just becomes a nap for those who trust Jesus. You'll be raised again. All we know is that the, the tombs were open when he died, and then when Jesus rose from the dead, these people walked out of the tombs. You know, bones were sewn together again, hearts were beating. I mean, this was full, they were real people walking around. But there was such a supernatural explosion of, of power, of life, and light with Jesus that he brought some of the Old Testament saints with him. Where they ended up, no one knows. And I think that's on purpose. So we look at Jesus, not the saints. <coughs> but look at it. This is the death of death and the death of Christ. It's sadness being reversed. It's death being unraveled, coming untrue. It's death swallowing up Jesus and Jesus slaying death from the inside. And it's a picture I want to leave you with of what will happen to every Christian when Jesus returns. This is what happens after death for the believer. You fall asleep. You take a nap. That's all death is for the Christian. And God will wake you up. And you're going to do exactly what these saints did. You're going to go into the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the city whose name is the Lord is my righteousness, the city whose name is I don't deserve to be here, but Jesus brought me in anyway. <laughs> the city is going to be filled with resurrected saints, all those who have trusted in Jesus by faith, all those who are saved from death by Jesus' death. See, this is your future. That because Christ died, we will live. And death is just a gardener, <laughs> no longer an executioner. I mean, that's what that poem is in your reflection. It doesn't matter whether you fall asleep in your bed at night, on your nice comfortable pillow, or whether your pillow is the dust of the grave. Jesus' resurrection assures that we will rejoice in the new Jerusalem. Death has died. Do you have that attitude towards your end? Have you made sense that life is temporary and you will die and Jesus loves you so much that he didn't want death to be the end of his relationship with you. He wanted to spend life eternal with you and I. So he died. And if you had come to this Jesus by faith, you can really say, like David, Psalm 23, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of my Lord forever. David knew it was coming. He just didn't know what it was going to look like. So death has died. So in conclusion, in a moment we're going to come and taste it. We're going to taste the death of Christ. This is what Jesus told us to do, to proclaim his death and his resurrection until he comes by eating a meal together. And what we're remembering is Jesus' death killed religion. And here's what I mean by that. Religion is our attempts to get up into heaven, our attempts to manipulate God to get God on our side. And what we're tasting is that we can never do that. 
God tore the curtain from top to bottom. We didn't tear the curtain from bottom to top. So we're tasting of God's forgiveness, his grace given to us simply because he loves us, which puts to death that relentless desire, that thing we have in ourselves that says, I'm not good enough and I have to prove myself to God. It's telling you, let Jesus be your Savior. (laughs) Let Jesus be your righteousness because that's who he is. He is the one, the reason that we can sit and eat in God's presence. And some of you walk around with a dark cloud of guilt for your past. Right? You know God forgives. You've heard this story over and over and over again. And I just want to encourage you, look at where your sin is, buried in the ground with Jesus. The final nail in Jesus' humiliation was death, but it's telling you that your sin was crucified. It was paid for. It is finished. If you would rest in him, he will lift up your head. See, this table is reminding us to not be a grave digger. (laughs) Don't don't dig up from the ground what what Jesus has buried. Rest in what he has done. Come and eat. Taste Jesus' full and free forgiveness. So, we've seen the death of Christ taking away God's darkness so that we could experience his loving light. We've seen that Jesus' death means that the death of death. We can look at death as just a nap. And we can come full and free and enjoy God's presence because he's taken away our guilt, our shame. And that's what I pray you and I taste and see this morning. (coughs) that it would crucify our self-improvement projects when it comes to relating to our God and our Father. Because the irony is, is if you love Christ and Him crucified, His rules uh, will turn from duty into choice. You're like, I want to be like that, the one who loved me, the one who loved me first. See, the irony of the cross are those who get better are those who know that because of the cross, God loves them the same even if they don't. That changes you. The Spirit moves in, and the cross is telling you that. And so my prayer for us as a church, <coughs> excuse me, that in 2019, this would be our, goal, our resolution, so to speak. Right? I'm not against resolutions and getting better and better health and fitness, nor is, nor is Jesus. But this is a call to grow in our love of Christ and Him crucified because it's in His death that we find eternal life. So go and learn what that means. Let's pray. Father, we're going to come to the table and taste and proclaim that You have died and You have risen again. And so I pray for this intimate experience, this family meal, Lord, that that we would uh, have our hearts and souls refreshed that we would taste of your grace and your forgiveness and that we wouldn't just stare at the benefits of grace, but we would look at the grace giver and fall in love with him, Jesus. So help us this day to love Jesus who died for us. That in turn causes us to love you and love our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to ask the elders to come forward.